Hello and welcome to the Brexit Central podcast. I'm David Scullion and I'm joined today by Gerard Lyons, an economist and the former chief economic advisor to Boris Johnson while he was mayor at London. He now has a portfolio of roles in the private sector. Welcome, Gerard. Hello, good to speak to you and thank you for inviting me on. It's a great pleasure no, to be here. No problem. Um, first of all, how on earth should we read the UK economy at the moment? People have um, written it off, a lot of economists have written it off after the Brexit vote um, and it seems to be doing fairly well, but, but how do you see it? Okay, let me answer that um, question in two um, parts. One, about the economy since the referendum, and second, how the economy is performing now. And at the moment, there's a considerable degree of uncertainty. But in terms of um, the three years since the referendum, the economy has been uh, marked out by a number of features. Uh, a very important one has been the flexibility, the openness of the economy. All economists, I would say, before the referendum would agree that the UK was probably one of the most open and adaptable economies globally. And I think that certainly has been the case as evidenced in the employment data. Since the referendum, we've created over one million new jobs. So that's the first key factor, which has been a positive. The second key factor has unfortunately been slightly negative, and that is because of the uncertainty surrounding Brexit, and maybe because of the lack of vision that's been portrayed linked to Brexit, investment has underperformed relative to our G7 counterparts. The G7 are the seven biggest Western economies in the world. So investment has underperformed, although, of course, the UK still has seen a lot of investment from tech companies and from overseas into the UK, seeing the UK in a longer-term positive perspective. And the third characteristic since the referendum that's important to highlight has been sterling. Sterling has effectively been seen as a barometer of the economy or a shock absorber in some people's eyes. It has weakened and recently has been volatile. So three factors stand out since the referendum. Uh, The healthy jobs growth, the poor investment picture relative to the G7 countries, and sterling's volatility. As we look at the economy now, it's important to put the UK in the context of a global economy that's slowing, and the global economy has slowed significantly over the last year. And it's important that this week in Washington, the International Monetary Fund and World Bank meetings are likely to highlight a world economy that is slowing and needs a significant policy response to stop it slowing further. Policy response in terms of the trade dispute between China and the US, but also policy response in terms of more monetary and fiscal stimulus among a host of Western economies. And the other feature, of course, in addition to that global slowdown, when one has to view the UK economy now, is the uh, Brexit uncertainty. We had an economy that grew strongly in the first quarter, an economy that contracted in the second quarter. There was a lot of stock building ahead at the end of March when we might have left the EU. And in the third quarter, the economy is likely to have grown slightly. But overall, the underlying picture is an economy that's been impacted by the global slowdown, impacted by Brexit uncertainty. And the underlying picture is one where the economy has slowed over last year and is likely growing at a modest pace as we move into the second half of the year. In terms of uncertainty, what what do businesses really want? What are they looking for from politics? Well, um, it's not as if the uncertainty and certainty are the main drivers of an economy, but they certainly do impact the outlook. Um, I tend to say that the outlook for this economy, indeed any economy, depends on the interaction between the economic fundamentals, policy and confidence. And confidence is very difficult to uh, predict when confidence is low 
um, people don't spend, companies put investment plans on hold. So in answer to your question, I think uh, businesses would like to see a strong domestic economy, but the domestic economy is slowing, as I've just touched on. But above that, they'd like to see some clarity in terms of the policy outlook, and namely get Brexit done, or at least have some clarity about where we are going post the end of October 31st. I tend to be of the view that we need to conclude this Brexit process and move to the next stage. I think continuing to kick the can down the road would be negative for the economy. It would lead to further political uncertainty, and that political uncertainty would lead to further economic uncertainty. So I think businesses would not only like to see a robust domestic economy, uh, they also would like to see clarity about policy here in the UK. And when I say clarity about policy, that's policy linked to Brexit. So you're not terrified by leaving the EU without a deal? I think the best scenario for the UK would be to leave the EU with a deal. And ideally, that deal should be a good deal. Mm. It makes sense to have a good, sensible future working relationship with the European Union. In terms of the outlook for the economy, um, I co-authored a book with Liam Halligan called Clean Brexit. And half of that book was about how we should leave the EU. And we basically correctly predicted all the problems that we're now seeing. And the second half of that book, very importantly, was about the domestic agenda. And I don't think there's been enough focus on the domestic agenda. To make a success of leaving the European Union, we need to really get three areas right. Our relationship with the EU, our domestic economic outlook, and our relationship with the rest of the world outside the EU. And bear in mind that even according to the European Commission, around 90% of global growth in coming decades is set to come from outside the EU. So coming back to your question, I think it's sensible to try and aim for a good deal with the EU. But it's very important that the deal we conclude does not tie our hands on domestic policy, for instance, on future regulation, and does not tie our hands on our future ability to position ourselves with the rest of the world, for instance, tie our hands on future trade deals. So important that we leave ideally with a deal, but important that that deal does not tie hands on domestic policy or on our ability to position ourselves globally. Um, the impression I get from economists who back Brexit um, tends to be that they are very free market, they're very uh, Thatcherite, they're very um, small state and kind of allowing businesses to get on with things and favouring lower regulations. Is that Does that kind of describe your, your economic outlook? Well, I would actually say what we saw with Brexit and the referendum was broad cross-party support from Conservative voters, from Labour voters and from voters of other parties, which in some respects helps explain some of the problems we've seen in Westminster in the last two or three years. Um, different parties are constrained in different ways. In terms of the European Union, it is interesting that you ask the question the way you do, because when one looks back, prior to our joining the EU, and indeed it was then called the EEC, European Economic Community, some of the biggest critics um, were on the left. In fact, one of the most interesting speeches was back in 1962 from um, Hugh Totnay, the Gateskill, the head leader of the Labour Party at Labour Party conference. And indeed in the 75 referendum, it was heavyweights on the Labour side like Brian Gould, Peter Shaw, Tony Benn who were arguing the case for being outside. So I think the key issue 
is about sovereignty when we talk about our future relationship with the EU. There are economic arguments for being in the EU and there are very strong economic arguments for leaving the EU. I think the economic arguments for leaving are, are much greater than the economic case for staying. But sovereignty is the most important issue and the ability of the UK electorate to determine UK basically laws via their elected representatives. So in answer to your question, I think I would see it in more broader terms. To make a success of Brexit, I would say a good analogy might be three legs on the stool. Each leg needs to carry its weight for the stool to be strong and stable, to kind of phrase. Um, and those three legs on the stool are, are superseding, in some respects, some of the issues you asked about in your question, because a proactive fiscal policy is important. Ideally, that should be about infrastructure spending and tax cuts when affordable to get the incentives right. The whole supply side agenda, and it's very important there to have the right regulations, both in the financial sector and across the rest of the economy. And the third leg of the stool is monetary and financial policy. So it's fiscal policy, supply side agenda, and the whole uh, monetary and financial framework. And I think we need to have a whole of government approach to actually set us on the right lines. But certainly it is the case that within that, one needs to recognise that the UK is a very imbalanced economy. We need to be both realistic about the challenges the UK faces, as well as providing a vision for the future. And I don't think we've really had that vision for the future coming through in much of the debate. Not because it's not there, it clearly is there, but we've been dragged down into fighting sort of the referendum in some respects all over again, albeit in different ways. So in, in what way is the economy unbalanced? Um, yeah, the imbalances are seen in many different respects. Um, the most common imbalance that's highlighted is the regional imbalance. That is more than London versus the rest. There are also place issues in terms of urban versus rural, coastal versus <coughs> inland, which in terms of the Brexit debate highlights the importance of having a farming policy and a fisheries policy free for the constraints of the EU. But place is part of the imbalance, but also there are other imbalances, skilled versus unskilled workers. Skilled workers in high-paid, high-productive jobs, um, unskilled workers often in low-paid, low-productivity jobs. And that's linked into the whole productivity debate that we've had in the UK for some time. Although it should be stressed, the UK is not the only country in the West facing up to this productivity puzzle or challenge. Then there are other imbalances in terms of homeowners versus those who rent. That highlights the importance of having a whole home building policy for the country. So there are imbalances in many different respects and they need to be addressed. Now, if we were to take the place issue, um, the European Commission every three years does an analysis of uh, regions or sub-regions as they call it, of the European Union. And um, I think they have about 270 or so, but three of the five most competitive are in the southeast of England. Um, the UK has one more in the top 10. So four of the top 10 are in the southeast of England. Uh, but some of the underperforming regions are also found in the UK. We have, to use the Commission's terminology, a heterogeneous distribution. So places like South Yorkshire, West Wales and the Valleys, 
Cornwall, the Scilly Isles and parts of Northern Ireland underperform relative to the national average. So we have a heterogeneous distribution which reinforces the imbalanced nature of the economy. Now, the important thing to stress is that there are many things that we should have done when we were in the European Union, and we still are in the EU, but many things we should have done over the last 40 years, um, but we didn't. I think a change should frame a term of reference um, and also a clearer approach will make it easier for us to address many of these outside the EU. But you can't blame the EU for all of these issues. But at the same time, there's no doubt in my mind that having been in the EU, and more importantly maybe still, the future direction of travel of the EU, as we've seen in the last few years, it's got faces many big challenges, that increases the economic case for being outside. And when one looks globally, the UK, as well as the whole of Western Europe, to be frank, needs to reposition itself in the growing, changing global economy. So leaving the EU is an opportunity, and it's an opportunity for the UK to better address domestic issues, some of which we should have addressed before, and gives us a better position, I think, to really place the UK on the faster future growth trajectory outside the EU. Um, an argument often made um, by Remainers is that um, Britain needs the EU, it needs the um, single market, it needs the customs union, it needs that clout when negotiating trade deals um, abroad. But I guess another argument that, that could be made is that the, the British economy, for all the, the kind of regional inequalities you've highlighted is actually doing very well. Our jobs, um, our unemployment rate is very low and actually could an argument be made, hang on a minute, from an economic point of view, why are we wanting to leave um, since compared to the rest of the EU, our economy is actually doing very well? Okay, there are again the whole host of issues within that question. I think sometimes we can be caught up in terms of size and thinking um, because the whole of the EU is so big, we should be part of it. Uh, but at the same time, um, you could use size as an argument for being outside, because standing on its own, the UK is the fifth biggest economy in the world, depending on how currency moves. Uh, but coming back to the first part of your question about trade deals, what has been interesting is that when the EU has negotiated trade deals, um, the UK's demands have never been number one on the list of areas. In fact, agriculture is usually the most important issue. The UK's demands are just one of many, one of 28. And as our economy is so different to the other 27, we're effectively a service sector economy, those demands figure well down. When one compares, say, let's take some countries that are often cited here, um, South Korea, Chile, Singapore, I'm not saying the UK is like these economies. These are far smaller economies than the UK. But each of them is better in terms of negotiating trade deals than, for instance, the European Union, because they negotiate trade deals based on what's best for their economies. Uh, the EU tends to not be a good negotiator for the UK when it comes to trade deals. It tends to force its own agenda on other countries. Um, it's not a global player, I would argue, in the same way in which the UK would be. So I think we would be cutting better trade deals outside the EU. And also it's important to stress that um, 
I'd say a few years ago, I was on the advisory board of Open Europe, which was seeking to reform the EU. And one of the most important issues that reoccurred was the acceptance across Western Europe that the EU needed to reform its service sector. And it failed to do that. So I think we've not really seen the EU reform and we weren't able to reform it from the inside. It is very much a politically driven project and that's setting the centre direction of the EU for the future. So I think the UK would be better placed outside but having a good, sensible, future working relationship with the EU um, in charge of our own sovereignty but at the same time, and to reiterate the points made earlier, positioning ourselves globally and also serving our domestic agenda far better outside the EU. Mm. So we, um, we're on the approach now to October the 31st, the, the deadline which the Prime Minister has said we'll definitely leave by. And we've got a, a European Council summit coming up. We've got an extraordinary session of Parliament on Saturday. What would your... Um, kind of advice be? What are your thoughts on on the days ahead and, and what, what really to do? Well, raw politics seems to be driving the process at the moment. Um, but looking at it from an economic and financial perspective, um, I think it's sensible to say that I would like there to be a deal. I think it still makes sense to expect there to be a deal because that's in the best interests of both UK and the European Union. Whether the politics allows there to be a deal remains to be seen. Naturally, if we have a deal, then we move to a transition period. I argued a couple of years ago for a transition period on the basis that makes it far easier for firms as well as people to adjust. Um, I think we need to stop constant talk of a second referendum. Um, A further period of uncertainty is, in my view, no one's interests. And... 2016 referendum was one of the most legitimate exercises in democracy. Elections come and go, but in the 2016 referendum, the issues were debated in force. It was made quite clear, uh, particularly by the Remain side, that if we were to vote leave, it meant leaving the customs union and the single market. The Prime Minister then, David Cameron, couldn't have been clearer on that. So I think in terms of the approach we're taking, I think Boris Johnson has taken a very proactive and sensible approach. Clearly we need, looking ahead, a sense of realism and vision. Realism about the challenges in leaving anything that you've been in for over 40 years. Realism about some of the challenges facing the domestic economy. Realism as well about the fact that the global economy itself is slowing down. But a vision as well is needed because there are many things the UK is very successful at, very many things that the UK does incredibly well. And outside the EU, there's no reason to think that the UK will not continue to do well what it still does well at at the moment. And I think we can actually strengthen our economy further in many other ways. So we need to have a clear policy path the further ahead one looks. Uh, But naturally we need to clear up the uncertainty over our future relationship with the European Union. So three years of of kind of dither, you still haven't lost your enthusiasm for Brexit and for what we can do outside the EU? Well, in that book I co-authored with Liam Hannigan, um, we correctly, I would say, argued that if you try and go down the path that we've gone down in the last few years, you would naturally run into many different 
areas mm. of difficulty. One has to respect the position of the EU27 and also one has to acknowledge the challenge of leaving something that we've been in for over 40 years. Mm. But at the same time, and coming back to your question, I think we need to be realistic about not just the challenges, but as I say, optimistic and um, also realistic in that respect about the global opportunities ahead. There are many bigger factors at play here in terms of how the world economy is changing. But I think Brexit really does allow the UK an opportunity to reposition itself both domestically and globally. A reboot of the economy is necessary. Mm. And I think we are better able to do that and achieve success from that outside the European Union. And just finally, um, if the government uh, does manage to leave and we end up leaving without a deal, do you think the best economic policy would be to have an emergency budget and to have huge spending and, and QE? Okay. If we were to leave without a deal, then there are a number of things. Um, it's very opaque how much preparation has taken place uh, for no-deal planning. But many firms have actually, when pushed on this, said that they are fully prepared. So I think we need to see how things unfold in terms of how prepared we are and also how the other side reacts. Also, one should expect if we were to go down the path of no deal, and I don't think we will, but if we were to go down that path, then I don't think no deal itself is an end in itself. It's more likely to be a stepping stone to future trading relationship. Mm. Uh, at the same time, there would be scope for a policy response. That policy response not just needs to focus on the demand side of the economy, but on the supply side of the economy itself. Mm. And it would involve not just monetary policy, but fiscal policy. So naturally, there would be a fiscal response, going back to your question, mm. uh, in terms of the budget. We need a budget at some stage. The Chancellor has already indicated that if there is a deal, which he presumably expects and I expect, then that budget would be November the 6th. If it's, there's not a deal, the budget will be a few weeks later, allowing time to assess the immediate impact. But there would be a need to um, look at both how the demand and supply side of the economy were impacted, and also actually very much about um, getting the right message across. I think the message that we need to continue to convey is slightly different to the one that has, in some respects, filtered out um, to many people in the last few years. Brexit is a great opportunity for the UK, and I think we need to recognise that. Uh, but if there were no deal, it was a no-deal scenario, um, then that clearly complicates the near-term outlook. I think some of the um, fears associated with no-deal are overblown. But as I was saying earlier, I think it's far better for the UK to leave with a deal. And indeed, I expect that to be the approach we take. Gerard Lyons, thank you very much. Pleasure. I'm David Scullion, and I was speaking to The Economist Gerard Lyons on the Brexit Central podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can subscribe to our daily Brexit briefing at brexitcentral.com forward slash subscribe.